0: Thank you, mothers, for all that you do. The most important job in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Amen. Well, we're going to continue our journey through the Gospel of John this week. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to John chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along on the screen uh, behind me, or you can, there's also Bibles underneath your seats that... uh, We'd love for you to participate in, and uh, we are going to be in John chapter sixteen. We're coming to the end of John. It might be, means it might be like six months to a year. And we might actually be done, right? Amen. My the president of my uh, Bible college, John MacArthur, he he spent thirty-five years, I believe, taking his people through. Was it thirty-five? I think it was thirty-five years taking his people just through the New Testament. So, if you think it takes me a long time. But his saying was you never you never need to worry about when we're going to get through with John. It's when John gets through with us. Right? This is inspired scripture given to us by our creator God to know who he is and know we, how we can have a relationship with him. And so it's our privilege to take as much time as we need to to try to glean as much truth as we can out of these passages of scripture, so thankful for that. So, John chapter sixteen, we're, we're going to be at, and we're going to just do the first fourteen verses this um, this morning. And um, let's go ahead and read those, and then we will we will get into it. So, John sixteen. Jesus begins, he's talking to his disciples here, and he says, I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. Verse 4, but I have told you these things so that When their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going away to him who sent me. And not one of you asks me, where are you going? Yet because I've spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Verse 7, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. And if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. Verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own, but He will speak whatever He hears, and He will also declare to you what is to come. And He will glorify me, because He will take uh, from what is mine and declare it, to you let's pray shall we father god we come before your throne of grace and mercy lord so thankful lord that we have this opportunity to meet inside this building this morning lord we're grateful for the reminder of these past couple months lord that the church is not a building the church is not what the sign says outside the church is your people who are called by your name that is the church, Father. And we're grateful to be able to assemble here today. Or we're grateful to be, have a place where we can meet, to open up your word, to, to glean your truth, to sing songs of worship to you, Lord, to, for you are worthy of all things. And so we just, before we begin this morning, just want to offer our thankfulness, God, for your providence, for your goodness, for your faithfulness, Lord, seeing us through these difficult times. You're so good to us, God. And we're thankful. And as we meet here this morning, Lord, we pray, God, especially on this text of the Holy Spirit, God, we pray that your Spirit would move, would move in the hearts, beginning with mine, and everyone within this building and those listening. God, we need you desperately. We need your working, Lord we are a needy people. We can't do it in our own strength. Christianity is not about how good we can do, but it's about learning to trust in you, lean into you. So God, my prayer this morning is that you would work in our hearts, that you'd receive glory in all that is said and done. And we ask it in Christ's most precious and powerful name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we have here Jesus talking to his disciples. We've we know in, beginning in, in John 14 that Jesus is beginning to, to, to prepare his disciples for the coming trial that is to come. And that he's going to go on trial, Jesus, and be condemned to death. Although he did not do anything wrong, the religious leaders conspire against him, pay off people, bribe people to lie about him. And he goes to the to the cross, but we know as Scripture declares that is all part of God's plan. It was God's plan before the foundations of the world that Jesus would go to the cross so that he would be the penalty, uh, he would pay the penalty for sin. But he's preparing his disciples for this trial that is to come. And we've seen how he's talked about how we can... Go to the Father. We can pray at any time because what Jesus has done is our great mediator at the right hand of the Father. We are given the Holy Spirit and that's what we're going to be talking about today. What a gift. God the Spirit in us. Being able to produce the fruit of the Spirit on our lives. To give us peace when there's nothing in this world that can offer peace. To give us joy in spite of the difficult circumstances and the individual trials that we face. The patience that a mother needs in the household just every day, right? Is a gift from the Spirit of God. He's been given to us. God the Spirit indwells the heart of every believer. And we talked about last week how Jesus begins to tell them, look, yes, I've given you some tools, but I've given you these tools because persecution is coming. Right? When I die, they no longer can work out their frustration, their anger, their hatred towards me on me because I'll be, I'll be gone. So what they're going to do is they're going to turn and they're going to work out their hatred on you, my followers, my disciples. The hate that they have for me is going to be placed onto you. And it's still the same today. We talked about last week. I don't want to repreach the sermon. Now, many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world know nothing but persecution for following Christ. And we have no idea what the future holds, but as the trend is pointing to us that There is certain to be uh, persecution to come into our land for following Christ, for taking a stand for the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a guarantee according to Scripture. We will suffer persecution. We don't know what kind of persecution, but we probably already have and will continue to suffer persecution for it. And he closes John 15 by saying that... In verse 26, when the counselor comes, he's talking about uh, the word counsel there is the parakletos, the God the Spirit. Parakletos means in Greek uh, to come alongside. The Spirit, God the Spirit comes and he indwells the heart of the believer and he, he, he comes and walks our life with us. He's to come alongside. And, and in this context, I, I believe there's some debate as to if comforter is a good translation or not, but I believe in this context that indeed he is our comforter. When trials come, and tribulations come, I, I've encountered it many times when things are just blown up in my face and all I have is to cry out to God and the peace that passes all understanding comes. The comforter of the Spirit is a unique, treasured gift for the Christ follower. He says, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you, From the Father, the Spirit of truth. So he's not only our our counselor, our comforter, but he's the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about you, or about me. He will testify about me. And you also, he goes on to tell his disciples, because you have been with me from the beginning. And so the God, the Spirit, this gift that he's given to us is a great gift for the Christian, but it also means of our evangelism. And that's kind of what I want to focus on today. When I became a, a, a believer, I went to an evangelism class and they gave me this, like, s- this script that I'm just supposed to say in front of a door and it sounded like a sales pitch. And I thought if I could figure out, if I could say this, this, this script in a convincing way that people might come to the Lord. right? So I practiced and I practiced and I spent two years knocking on doors. And I prayed and I asked God would use it and all these things, but did I really grasp and understand that it's truly God the Spirit who does the convicting? If I'm just doing a sales pitch then it's just of man. We need the power of God in our evangelism. It is the Spirit of God who does it. And this is what Jesus is focusing on. He's telling them look, the Spirit's going to testify about me. So when you say, when you bring up Christ to your friends and neighbors, to your coworkers, it's Uh, Lord willing, it's the Spirit who will testify to their hearts, their inner self, of the truth that you are proclaiming. And so we see here in uh, chapter 16, in the first four verses, we see that, again, Jesus reminds the disciples, and, and because this is inspired words from God, the Spirit has preserved this word for us, we can take these truths to be evident for us as well. That when that persecution does come right you we, we probably all can share experiences when we 've been shut down or made up be ashamed for proclaiming your truth in your in the workplace or to your friends when they, they they kind of laugh underneath their breath or any of those things the The tendency is for us as humans to to take it personally, and Jesus again tells the disciples here that it's it's uh it's not about them personally. And there's certainly no need to doubt the truth claims of Jesus because of the persecution that we encounter. He says there in verse one, "I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling." All right? He's going to the cross. He's going to die. Three days later, he rises from the grave. He's 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 with his, the the people to testify of his of his of his ascent or of, of rising from the grave, and then. Forty days later, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And when Jesus is gone, the anger, the hatred is shifted to his disciples. And so Jesus is is telling you, look, I'm telling you before it happens, you're going to get persecution, but don't you worry. Don't stumble. Don't let this doubt creep into your mind. I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. He goes on in verse 2. They will ban you from the synagogue. In fact... A time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will ban you from the synagogues. We see that happen over and over again in Acts. And then we see this ironic statement Jesus says. In fact, they think the time is coming when, one who, when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. Right? ironic. We see that in the life of the Apostle Paul who was persecuting the church going after Christians, gave assent to the, to the martyrdom of Stephen. That God can save even him. But in this ironic statement, they, they think they're doing something for God. These religious leaders think that they're doing something good. They're, they're built up in their religious system, their religious pride, and they're saying, I'm doing this as a service for God. It's ironic. The servants of God being killed for, in the name of God itself. Verse 3. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. Again, these religious, very religious people, these religious leaders who have the Old Testament memorized. Jesus time and time again uh, through the writings of John the spirit through the writings of John demonstrate that there's two types of people those who believe and those who walk in unbelief and he's saying look they're doing these things because they even though they claim God they, they do things for God they, they, all their life is centered around this religious system they do not know the father or me they don't know him and uh Jesus' high priestly prayer that we're going to cover in chapter 17. Jesus prayed this. This is eternal life that they may know you, Father, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. What is eternal life? To know God. To know God in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That is eternal life, to, to have relationship with him. And, and so in the West, we, we talk about all you need. You don't need religion. You need a relationship with Christ. And it, it's come just kind of this thing that we say. But, but this is the roots of it, that you have to have relationship. You, the Father has to know you. You have to enter into, into his family. And there's only one way, and that's by receiving and believing the gospel. You're adopted into God's family. You cannot know God unless you know Jesus. You cannot be with the Father unless you allow Jesus to save you from the judgment that you deserve. Eternal life is knowing the true God and the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus painted it in a negative way in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to these masses of people and he says, Not everyone, these words just break my heart. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name and, and do many miracles in your name? And then I announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers showing and demonstrating that the righteousness that we try to build ourselves up in in and of ourselves or in the religious system falls massively short in the eyes of a righteous and holy God. All these people, these religious leaders in Jesus' time saying we're doing all these works in the name of God. Doesn't that count for something? And how many people do we know who do the same thing? spend their lives zealously working for things of God, trying to establish themselves in their own works and righteousness, thinking that's what they need, that's what they've been told. And on this last day, unless they encounter Jesus, unless they know Jesus, this will be the proclamation. I never knew you. So there's no need to doubt when persecution comes. There's no need to falter. There's no need to feel ashamed for the message of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And if it costs some friendships along the way, so be it. If it costs a promotion along the way, so be it. If it costs you your life, so be it. This is the message of eternal life. He goes on, verse 4, But I have told you these things so that when the, their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. And I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. He says, I'm telling you now because they're coming, and I want you to remember that I've told you about it, so you don't doubt, so that you don't stumble. And so my prayer this morning is when persecution comes your way, that the Spirit of God would remind you as well that it's not a time to doubt. It's not a time to stumble in your faith and your walk with Christ. These things are prophesied to come. Blessed is he who endures persecution, right? Talked about that last week. Go, moving on. Allergy season, brother, i tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, verses 5 through 7. Jesus must go so that the Spirit would come. All right, in verse 5. But I now I'm going away to him who sent me. He's going to the Father, the right hand. And not one of you asked me, where are you going? Yet because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And so it's a little bit of a tricky passage because we know in in 13 and 14, his disciples do ask. He's mentioned this before, right? I'm going away. And they're like, where are you going? I want to go. Right? And he's he's like, you can't go. I'm coming back for you. All those beautiful words that we've discussed in John 14. So it's not necessarily that. So I think, you know, we're kind of reading between the lines here, but he's declaring it yet again. He's restating the fact that he's, he's going away. And this time they're like, you know, last time I mentioned something, he, he's already answered this. And, but what he says is that, in verse 6, yeah, because I've spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And so we see that they're sad over this notion that Jesus is saying he's going away that he's going on to proceed to the Father. They've been walking with the God of the universe for three years. I would be sad too. There's sorrow in their hearts. And Jesus is saying, look, I understand that. I I have compassion towards you with that. But there's good news in that. Verse 7, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth it is for your benefit that I go, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you, God the Spirit. If I go, I will send him to you, and so what Jesus is saying is is Jesus knows right he he knows all things, and so he 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 he's inaugurating his kingdom he's got about ready to send his church out into the known world to declare the gospel to win many to to the gospel of Christ, to, to br- add many to God's family through the proclamation of the gospel. And Jesus knows that the key element in that is that those disciples, these fishermen, these these just humans who are constantly, as John depicts, falling short and not quite getting connecting all the dots, Jesus knows that the only way that that can happen is if God the Spirit indwells them and empowers them for the mission of the gospel. So what Jesus is saying that it is better to have the presence of Jesus through the indwelling of the Spirit, the presence of Jesus in us, through the indwelling of God the Spirit, than to have a limited presence of Jesus bound by his physical presence. Right? If he's on earth, he can only be at one place at one time. God the Spirit comes and dwells in the hearts of the believer, and we all get to enjoy the presence of Christ. What a blessing. It also fulfills eschatological, kind of that's the... The study of the end times. Old Testament prophets prophesied that the Spirit would come. Joel 2 28. After this, I will pour out my Spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will pour out my Spirit on all humanity. It's a fulfillment of yet another Pro- Old Testament prophecy of God the Spirit indwelling in the hearts of the believers. God point forth his spirit into our hearts. And so it's a necessary although sad event for the disciples. It's a necessary event for the advancement of God's kingdom throughout the earth. We go on that the spirit's interaction, the spirit's role within the world at large. What is that? And that is to convict the world. Again, it's not our slick sales presentation that's going to win someone to the Lord. It's going to be God the Spirit doing a work in them. And Jesus describes for us what the Spirit does. And I pray that this has happened to you, that the Spirit, I know many of you, praise be to God, accepted the Lord Jesus at a a very young age because you were in a Christian home. And that is the testimony that I pray for my kids. They don't have to have the scars and the emotional baggage and the constant fight with, with the, the you know, sins of the flesh that those who don't know the Lord for some time into our adulthood and then have to have all that and drag all that along with us. But if that's the case, it, it, hopefully all of us in the, under this room has had that encounter where, where the Spirit has convicted you of your need for Jesus and that you've turned, you've turned from what you were doing and received and believed and trusted in Christ alone. That's how we know the Father is through the Son, believing and trusting in what he has done for us. And if it's not the case for you, it's my prayer. I've been praying all night. Well, not all night, but a large portion of the night. That God the Spirit would convict you this morning of your need for Jesus. Jesus. The spirit is to come into the world in verse eight. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. So, what does that mean? We're going to look at uh, through these these three things a, a little bit closer. So, the first one is convict the world of sin. Right in verse nine, about sin because they do not believe in me. Sin is is uh, uh, working in. Uh, Outside of the bounds and the and the uh, of who God is and, and being contrary to God and this particular sin that Jesus is talking about is a sin because they do not believe in me again, demonstrating that the sole requirement to enter into god 's re- into a relationship with God and an eternity waiting for you that Jesus has purchased for us is believing and trusting in his accomplished work alone it 's not about getting baptized it 's not about doing the sacraments. It's not about uh, professing your sins on a daily basis. It's not about proving how good you are from last year or from the previous year. It's about trusting and believing in Christ and His accomplished work alone. And the sin, this world, this this, this conviction that the Holy Spirit is to put upon the world is this conviction of the sin of unbelief, not believing God, not believing in God's way of being saved and redeemed and reconciled to him unbelief is rampant through our human history God demonstrated himself time and times again unbelief is the root of Eve's sin in the garden when she she listened to say Satan when Satan said hath God really said hath God really said are, are you really going to believe that did God really say that casting doubt on God's word she bit it. And he went on to say, you, you won't surely die if you partake of that fruit. And so unbelief, her unbelief in what God had promised her, if he, she would just believe, she, she exercised her right to, to not believe those promises. And it was the root that was found there. Unbelief kept Israel out of the promised land, right? They doubted their God. Even after what God had done all that time, they Unbelief kept them out of it. Unbelief caused Moses to take honor to himself instead of giving it to God. Not trusting God. And in the New Testament context, as Jesus went out demonstrating his power to the known world, to, to the people in Jerusalem, to the religious leaders, right? All the miracles that we've, we've seen recorded here. They still res- refused to believe that he was Messiah. Unbelief in Jesus is the as the only mediator between God and man has caused many to commit the sin of unbelief. And it's the Spirit's job to convict people of that. That they're, they're choosing to reject Jesus alone and add all these other things. Jesus might be a part of it, but to add all these other things, this religious works or the, the good things, the good deeds that you do or all these other things to it, is truly demonstrating a soul that has unbelief in Jesus' complete complete work on the cross. Yes, Jesus plus this and all these other things means Jesus didn't pay for it all. It's a sin of unbelief. It's a sign of not trusting and believing in what Christ has done alone. And in the spirit, as the gospel is preached, as we are just the mouthpieces to be used to proclaim God's redemption story, the spirit, we trust in the spirit to convict the heart of the unbeliever. John 3.18, if you remember that way back there, anyone who believes in him is not condemned. You believe in Christ solely and trust wholly in what he has done, you are not found in condemnation, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned is he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So the Spirit is to convict the world of sin, the sin of unbelief, and receiving and believing Jesus and his accomplished work alone, res- believing in him and receiving him as Messiah, as the only mediator. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We've talked about that in John fourteen six. No man comes to the Father except by me. And number two, convict the world of God's righteousness. And about righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. So we have this beautiful description of Jesus showing up in, in John's Gospel. And John begins by by showing Christ's deity and his pre-existence with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those beautiful things. And then John would go on to say, and he was the light of men. He was the he came into this dark world and he demonstrated the wisdom of God and the righteousness of God. He, he walked perfectly with the Mosaic law. He didn't offend or sin at any time because he was God in the flesh. He was the standard of God's righteousness to us so that we can all look to Jesus and go, I fall horribly short. If that is God's requirement. I have no hope. Conviction of the Holy Spirit of, to, d- to demonstrate to people, unbelievers, the righteousness of God is so paramount. It's not believe in Jesus so he can be your best friend and give you worldly things. God convicts The Spirit of God convicts us of the righteousness of God. How righteous he truly is as he revealed Himself in Scripture. In Isaiah 64, 6, as we think to ourselves, and the, we might ask us the question, well, I'm a pretty good person. I, I haven't killed anybody or anything like that. In the eyes of God, our righteousness falls drastically mm-hmm. short of His. Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become something, like something unclean. And all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. That's what God says about our righteousness. It's filthy rags in the eyes of his holiness. Paul, the Apostle Paul, spent the first three chapters of Romans demonstrating to both the Jew and to the Gentile, no matter how religious you are, or if you're Gentile and don't have religion, or you have many gods, or all these things, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. He spends the first three chapters of Romans declaring that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of God's righteousness. Religious, Jewish, Gentile, man, woman, doesn't matter. We all fall short. We are all undone. And it's the Spirit's job to convict us of that. Because we don't understand the good news of Jesus unless we understand the bad news that Christ, God's righteousness is way up here and there's no way I can do anything to earn it. I am undone without Christ. Conviction of the Spirit. I am in sin, right? He's to convict us of the sin of unbelief. So we have this moment where as, a, as we encounter the gospel message, we, we see Christ's righteousness, we see that we fall short, that, that none of us can, can work our way of righteousness back to Him. We're offered Jesus, and we have this option, this opportunity to either reject him or receive him. Receive him in belief or reject him in unbelief. It's a work of God the Spirit. And thirdly, convict the world of God's judgment. Verse 11, and about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Praise be to God. At the cross, Satan was judged decisively. The ruler of this world was defeated. The sad part is all those who reject Jesus by believing in their own righteousness, that their own righteousness is sufficient and true, and, uh, and uh, those who are doing this thing are awaiting the judgment that Satan is awaiting. They are without cause in the eyes of a holy God. They have offended God. They have sinned. Their righteousness cannot outweigh their bad deeds. A holy and just jo- God must judge holy and justly. And it's the Spirit's job to convict the world of the pending judgment that is to come. That's why Jesus <laughs> has come. To seek and to save the lost. It's the spiritual to convict the world of these things. Right? So I'm hoping what our takeaway this morning is, is that, look, as we walk in the power and spirit of God, as we interact and, and share the gospel with our friends and neighbors, we're, we're, I'm praying that this, this, uh, this COVID-19 thing is a means in which God is softening the hearts for people to ask, What is the purpose of this life? Well, these things that I've been placing in my faith in have just crumbled around me. Hopefully we'll have many opportunities to share the good news of Jesus. But this passage of scripture says nothing's gonna happen unless the Spirit of God convicts them of sin, of unbelief, of the righteousness of God, and the judgment is to come. God only asks us to be his mouthpiece. To walk justly and to do holy unto our God. To, to live for Him out of obedience for what He has done for us. Right, He saved us from this. He saved us from that coming judgment. By God's grace, His unmerited favor, He extends a gift of salvation to you by simply trusting and believing in Him. He takes your sin. He, God punished Him for it on His account, but then we receive His righteousness. What a gift He's given us. And that is our hope for our loved ones around us that they would see the good news of Jesus Christ, but again they won't understand the good news unless they understand the bad news. Point number four in john sixteen twelve through thirteen uh, the spirit is the guide into truth, right he's the guide he he indwells the believer we, we we surrender to Him. We, we attempt to surrender to Him. I, I laugh and chuckle because there's many times right when I fight that. I find myself just fighting it. I don't know how it happened, but I'm fighting the wooing of the Spirit of God inside of me. But He is the guide that should guide us into all truth. Verse 12, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. So rest assured, believer. The spirit of God indwells you and he wants to guide you into all truth. And the best way that you know you're walking your life in the truth of God is allowing the spirit to define and illuminate your path through the word of God. Again, in Jesus's uh high priestly prayer in John 17 his prayer to the father for us is sanctify them set them apart from the world by your truth lord and he goes on to say your word is truth we have the spirit of truth dwelling inside of us he's given us the the everything that is sufficient for life and godliness as the apostle peter would say and it's the spirit's god to illuminate us to the truths that are found in Scripture, but also to help us along the path. One who comes alongside, right? paracletos To walk us along with us in this path. It's not enough that we just know. It's when we take this truth that is given to us and apply it to our lives. And allow the Spirit to transform us. To be used for His glory. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. What a marvelous gift we have in God's Word. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus. Verse 14. He will glorify me because he will take from me what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit's role in this world is crystal-centric. It's all about Jesus. He is all about convicting the world of the need for Jesus to be Savior. He's pointing followers to Jesus in their trials. All these things. He's all about Jesus. And it only goes to uh, logically work out that if we are the temple of God, if God dwells inside of us, what should we be about? Pointing people to Jesus. We should all be about Jesus. The Holy Spirit's role in this world is Christocentric, and, and we need to address the, the Spirit, God the Spirit, and God the Son, and God the Father. They've been revealed in God's Word as co-eternal, co-equal, right? Three persons, one God. Three distinct persons, one God. They're all co-equal. They're all co-eternal. That's who God has revealed Himself to be. And so, when we see passages like this, we don't assume that, that the Spirit is some type of force, He's referred to, as we've seen here in this passage of Scripture, he, that's a masculine, personal proman- pronoun. It's a, a person. It's not a force. It's not a. It's not just a fuzzy feeling. He is the third person of our triune God. And he's co-equal with the Father and co-eternal with the Father. But it... Um, but we see here as in the walk of Jesus, right, when Jesus is walking, he says it in John many times, right, I do whatever the Father tells me to. And so we see we see here that as God is interacting with his creation here on earth, that there's a there's a um, a subordinate or a functional subordination going on. That Jesus willingly submits to the Father's will. Right? He's the last Adam. He's what the first Adam should have been. He he willingly submits to the Father's will. Although co-equal and co-eternal, he, this, the functional subor- subordination is going on in the Godhead, and just as the fa- the Son, uh, you know, submits to the Father's will, the Spirit proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. Again, perfectly co-equal, co-eternal, three distinct persons, but yet we see it demonstrated time again: functional subordination within the Godhead. And that assures the unity and the harmony within the Godhead, right? When they're all working together in love, perfect love and perfect union with one another, right? Unity and community. E pluribus unum, right? God established the marriage and and before the fall in the garden, marriage was supposed to be unity and community, all done with perfect love and harmony. And then sin shows up. But in the Father, and the Son, in the, in the Spirit, in our God, our, our, our one God, three distinct persons, there is a perfect love and community, each playing a role and willingly submitting to the others to show the harmony that exists within our God and the unity within our God. And that unity is God's message to us. followers of Christ who desires us to work in unity. To love one another. And with the power of the Spirit we can do these things. Not perfectly. But as we do, we glorify Him who saved us. And so my challenge to you this week is spend some time asking God to reveal Himself through the power of the Spirit afresh and anew in your life. Asking God to not only d- opportunities of, to share the good news of Jesus to our friends and neighbors around us, to, for Him to open up those doors, but asking God to do it through the power of the Spirit that dwells inside of us, that the Spirit would convict and to demonstrate their need for salvation in Jesus alone. And my last challenge is, let's try to glorify Jesus with every breath that we have every moment we have an opportunity to respond to someone in anger or hatred or inconvenience or in love for a purpose to unify what I just said is impossible without God the Spirit but it's my prayer that God the Spirit does a work in our hearts in our lives that we might be able to do it for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we're thankful for your goodness. We're thankful for (laughs) the gifts you've given us, salvation, this life, eternal life that is to come, the gifts of the Spirit, Lord, that are produced because the God, the Spirit, indwells us, Lord. It's also in a time for if anyone is convicted of their need for Jesus and has not entered or encountered Jesus in that way, it's also the time for you to call out to God.